Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. When the coronavirus pandemic first swept through Australia, I counted myself fortunate because it appeared young children weren't at great risk. But with the Delta variant, we know that children are catching COVID and passing it on. At the same time, people have been rather quiet about talking about kids wearing masks, at least until very recently, now that we know when kids are going to go back to school, in New South Wales at least. And we don't really talk much about when the under-12s might be vaccinated, even though we've started talking about when those for the under 12 to 15 will be. It feels like the situation has changed, but the conversation is staying the same. And our children in primary school who are 12 and under are being, I don't know, maybe a little bit ignored. Dr. Alicia Thornton-Benko is a GP who feels like the communication about kids and the Delta strain has been unnecessarily confusing. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. So what is the main difference between the original strain of COVID and Delta? I mean, how many more children are getting sick? Yeah, I mean, the Delta the Delta variant is different to the original strain. It's more infectious and we're seeing more people get severe illness. Now, even though it is still a disease that affects older population more as far as severe illness and even death, more children are getting sick with coronavirus and more children are being hospitalised. So at the moment in New South Wales, about one in three to one in four Um, cases of coronavirus actually in children or in in those actually under 19 years of age. And that's very different to the original strain. As far as hospitalisation is concerned, well, yes, it's only 2 to 3%, but that's still not nothing. That's not rare. Mm. I mean, many parents, not speaking for myself here, are desperate to get their kids back to school, um, both both for their own sanity but also for their kids. I mean, it's having a big impact on kids, isn't it? But what's the problem with us being so keen to get our kids back to school? Yeah, I mean, I hear hear everyone and, and the parents and caregivers having three kids of my own and my youngest being six. I absolutely understand it's been quite disruptive to everyone's existences. I mean, there's been some special moments, but some hair-raising ones as well. And I've put my <laughs> <laughs> and I know teachers and schools are doing an amazing job and everyone's been learning through the process. And I agree, I know even just speaking personally in the beginning, I was like, oh, my goodness, it was real heart sink. But now (laughs) I don't think we need to get into the rush of saying, okay, we just need to make life easier and go back to normal without really thinking it through. So I do have some personal concerns um, as a health professional, and I know that there's a lot of differing opinions and a lot of different experts out there. But there are some key things I think that all parents and caregivers need to be aware of. First thing is that coronavirus is a disease of the unvaccinated. So it will basically find those, you know, when it's circulating in the community, it will seek out basically those that are unvaccinated and those are the ones that are going to get sick. So that's the first thing to consider. 
So as you know, Siobhan, the latest advice is that 16 and above are eligible in the local government areas of concern. And from the 30th of August, all 16 and above will be eligible to be immunised. Up to this point, 12 to 15 year olds with high risk have been eligible. And currently, there's new advice stating that that eligibility will open up to all 12 to 15 year olds from the 13th of September. However, where does that leave our under 12s? So currently, there's no immunisation occurring anywhere in the world um, for the under 12s, apart from Israel, I believe, for children that are over five and are considered very high risk. But the studies really are ongoing at this point in time and probably won't be back, you know, with results until the end of this year. They're currently studying different dosages um, and lower dosages um, with the Pfizer um, in particular um, compared to the adult dose. And I do believe Moderna is also doing some studies in their younger age groups. So that when we talk about then it being a disease of the unvaccinated, we do have this whole cohort under 12s that will essentially be vulnerable. And that, I believe, is a concern. Additionally, the current modelling that the government is referring to, the Doherty modelling, although they're an amazing institute, highly respected, they have completely done their modelling on 16 and above. So 16 and under uh, are not part of that modelling. Um, and they're a whole 20% of our whole population. So I think there are some key points that we really need to, to think about and discuss. So that sounds like it's unlikely we'll know whether vaccines are safe for kids uh, before next year. Um, Correct. There was already a lot of health anxiety about the speed that these current vaccines became available, even though now that it's a, a threat, that, that COVID is a, a real and present threat to people, we seem to be vaccine, vaccinating in much higher numbers. Um how do we reassure parents that when these vaccines become available for kids that they will be safe? Yes, very good question. Uh, first of all, mRNA technology, which is the basis for Pfizer and Moderna, um, that isn't new technology. <laughs> However, it is new technology as far as vaccinations are concerned. Now, usually it takes a very long time for studies to get done on new vaccinations because they need funding, there's all sorts of ethics and approvals that need to occur. All of those things have occurred with these immunisations as they become available. It's just that because of the current pandemic around the world, it was easy to get the funding, it was easy to get through, you know, they've, they've still ticked all the boxes, but they haven't had the same barriers that, that otherwise you may have. Uh, Australia is well known to be relatively conservative and very thorough in its testing. And we have the TGA as well as the ATAGI that make recommendations. So I have great confidence and faith in the Australian system that when they say something is safe, that, that it is. Of course, nothing's perfect. No, no immunisation, nothing is perfect. Um, there are potential side effects. But I have, I have faith in our system and I think 
and I urge the, the population to obviously do their homework, um, but I, I urge them to have faith in, in our system. We're also at an advantage in Australia because we are looking to overseas who did commence their vaccination programs earlier than ours and we are seeing the results of you know their early efforts and that does put us in an advantageous position also. What difference would it make if teachers were vaccinated and all parents of kids at school are vaccinated? Does that create enough herd immunity for our children? Well, it doesn't create herd immunity. In order to create herd immunity, you actually have to block transmission. So I don't see how that's going to be possible at this point in time. It, it, you know, to get herd immunity, even say for smallpox, which was aerosol born, took about 184 years to be honest. <laughs> so, um, yes, um, so I'm not quite sure, but it's certainly, yeah, that we would need much more happening, higher vaccination rates, higher vaccination rates of all age groups to even be talking herd immunity again, to be honest with you. But certainly protecting children, by having all the adults and all the eligible population around them vaccinated is absolutely you know, beneficial, but it doesn't mean that the child is unvaccinated is completely safe, but it is a layer of protection. The issue, however, is currently teachers aren't mandated, but they've been given priority. I believe they are going to be mandated, but potentially that is going to be after the return to face-to-face schooling, which for me poses some interesting questions. And I do tend to ask why couldn't we mandate teachers a little earlier? Um, but also having parents and, and, like I said, the eligible population around the children vaccinated. But when we send our children back to face-to-face you know, school, not necessarily are all the parents of the children going to be vaccinated, um, but I suppose we can rest assured from November the 8th that there is that mandate on teachers to be vaccinated. Part of what the New South Wales Premier discussed when it came to the plan of kids going back to school was that teachers would be wearing masks and I think she said over 16s would be wearing masks and that they strongly recommended that younger kids wore masks to school as well. Um, Previous to now, we haven't kids haven't been so contagious, they haven't been affected by coronavirus, so we didn't make them wear masks. And I know that it can actually be quite a big ask for most kids, particularly the very small ones, not only to wear a mask, but to keep it on all day. Is this something we just have to try and get our heads around and get our kids to start wearing masks? And, And should they be wearing masks not only at school, but if we're going outside with them, as many adults have to do in the mandated LGAs? Yes, all all very valid questions. So my understanding is that for high school, all high school students, when they return, will be required to wear a mask, plus all um, school staff. So that's the first thing. So that's really the 12 and above age group. And I and that's really what the rule has been anyway up to this point, that 12 and above. I know, yes, you're correct about saying that it's going to be strongly recommended for primary school students, but I do believe kindergarten, year one, year two, even year three are going to find that very, very difficult for a whole day at school. I, I feel, yes, above year four, year four and above, they probably, they understand a little bit more about it and they probably will be able to tolerate it or most people will be able to. 
Uh, but I, I, I'm just not quite sure. I'm not convinced those younger age groups will tolerate it, to be honest mm. with you. Um, yeah. Certainly we can always encourage them to do that, but mm, I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, me too. You know, I don't like getting, wearing it. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, getting them outside, outside's got less risk. I think the issue with a face-to-face learning environment is that it's going to be indoors. And yes, there are, you know, ventilation recommendations, even HEPA filters um, that could potentially help with some aerosol particles, but ultimately the children will be indoors. And I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm questioning the mask use in that, in that younger age group. If they can tolerate it, fabulous. I, I'm, yeah, yet to see mm. it in that age group. Mm. Um, what are the dangers of long COVID and does it seem to affect younger people at greater rates? Yes. Now, this is such an important question and I really feel it has been dismissed when some of the plans have been discussed and talked about, to be honest, in my opinion anyway. Um, you know, long COVID can occur in children and anyone actually even if they had really mild infections. So we're talking about two different things. So a lot of these plans that are coming about now, and although I embrace them in many respects, I do have concerns, like I said, in the unvaccinated children population because they are left completely exposed. And the issue here is that even if they caught coronavirus, everyone's saying, oh, well, the majority will be fine. The majority will be mild. It's only 2 to 3% in that age group. And it's up to 8% actually in those that are younger adults that are hospitalised. But they're not mentioning that even if you have mild infection, you may actually still get long COVID. And we're finding that definitely long COVID is an issue and it is an issue in children. Um, there's higher rates with the Delta variant with neurological complications after having infection in the children. Some studies have come out looking actually at adults. It's a preprint from the United Kingdom, but it's a prospective cohort. So looking sort of ahead. So they actually did these brain MRIs on adults before and after getting coronavirus infection, looking at the grey matter and some areas related to memory regions of the brain. And they found that there were actually some grey matter losses after the coronavirus infection. Now, I don't know, it's too early to say whether this is long-term or, or what the real implications are, but we are seeing these things. And if that's happening in adults, then that could be happening as well in children and they're developing brains. And does this mean they will have an increased risk of dementia? I mean, what what are the implications for them? I mean, all almost half of children in many of the you know studies are showing that many are experiencing some long-term debilitating symptoms. I mean, we're only really 18 months just over that into this pandemic, but this is an unknown area, but we, we know that there is long COVID. And I also know of a, a specific you know infectious disease specialist who has similar concerns to myself who has been studying long COVID. So when we're talking about all of these interventions and return to face-to-face schooling, I don't know that we're really factoring in this this potential for long COVID and its implications. What do you think the answers are? I mean, (laughs) I hate to put that on you, um, Alicia, because you're not... (laughs) (laughs) What can we do as parents um, knowing all of that? Hmm. Because... um, 
I'm not sure I'd say to contact your school because they're already under so much pressure and they're being kind of pulled every which way by the government. Yes. Um, What should we do? I mean, is it time we start making our voices heard to politicians? I think it is. I mean, I really do think it is. Look, I'm all for face-to-face teaching for lots of reasons, including getting some (laughs) sanity back for us all. Um, However, I I want our kids to be safe and I I want us to be sensible. I certainly feel now that the eligibility is opening up for 12 and above, fabulous. I hope that the majority of parents uh, embrace that and ask questions, contact their GP, ask the questions, read up on the government websites, etc. So they do have the information. Um, and I really encourage people to go ahead and if they feel comfortable and consent, obviously, they go ahead and, and get their 12 and above immunised. And so that's the whole high school population. So I'm all for them going back to face-to-face learning when, you know, hopefully the majority of them would be vaccinated. I do question the dating of the mandate for teachers. I wonder why it's November the 8th which is after the return to -to face-to-face schooling as the 25th of October in the staggered return, but that's the first date that's been mentioned. And um, I'm wondering why the mandate for teachers then is November the 8th. So that's one thing that's a question to me. Um, Mm. Additionally to that, then you've got this whole primary school cohort. I know, say, in year six, half those students may be 12, but there's a, a proportion of them that will still be 11 and eligible for the rest of the year. And so, yeah, I, I do feel probably reaching out, maybe giving it a few days to settle and, and for us to all think about it and see what all the experts out there who will have lots of opinions, I'm sure, in the media but yes, I, I I wonder because the thing is we're going to have term four, at least a good portion of the beginning of it, still remote learning. And I understand wanting to prioritise kindergarten and year one because we want them reading. We don't want them falling behind. And yes, there's mental health things. And yes, there's um, all those social aspects that are important um, and it's weighing everything up. However, we have been doing (laughs) a whole term, or will have done a whole term of remote learning and another chunk of term four. So I'm I'm just sort of wondering, is it is it worth is it worth putting them in those environments? Um, You know, I don't see how younger children's you know are going to be wearing the masks, and I don't see how they're going to be socially distanced either. So I. I I feel that we probably all should start as parents and caregivers having these discussions. I know people will have a lot of differing opinions, Mm. Um, maybe speaking with parents' associations or year groups and getting a feel for what other people in your school are are thinking and feeling. But if there's a majority voice, then I feel maybe, you know, someone representing that majority of voice should, should reach out to the school, absolutely, or the education department or the local politician. Um, But I I think we need to talk about this because I I absolutely welcome a great plan. It it does help with with planning, I suppose, literally for all of us. Um, But I just think we need to be sensible about this. And, you know, I don't think people should be living in fear either. But I suppose for me, I would prefer when it's safe to do so, my child to have a controlled immunisation rather than 
coronavirus itself, which is uncontrolled, and I'm not sure how they're going to respond to it, and I'm not sure if they're going to get long COVID. So mm. that's the question for me. So, yes, they get sicker less. Yes, they recover faster often, but the risk isn't zero. It's still significant. And the other issue is if we are opening up based on the Doherty report, which is what the government is relying upon, you know, at 70% and 80% of the 16 and above population, which is actually, you know, only really then about 50-something percent or 60-something percent of the overall population, if you're including children, then that does leave them even more exposed because we're potentially opening up when we have this vast cohort of unvaccinated children. And they're mixing, you know, you're mixing not just with other children who are unvaccinated, but the children then are, you know, you're kind of mixing with their, their parents <laughs> and other people that they might be mixing with. So we're assuming they may be vaccinated, but they might not be. Mm. Well, Lacey, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> uh, thank you for talking to us and um, I'm sure the discussion will continue. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. That's GP Dr Alicia Thornton-Benko. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, Email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.